have now moved on to the history section of um, this, this whole video. And who better to talk about the history of RFR than the founder and current president of Recovering From Religion, Dr. Del Rey. Dr. Ray, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for doing this, Eric. This is a great, a great project. Uh, actually, I love it. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. Well, um, most people probably know who, who you are, but for those few who don't, um, Dr. Ray, tell us a little bit about um, who you are. Like, what kind of, yeah, who are you? Or what do you do? Well, I'm retired right now, but I seem to spend almost full time helping Gail run Recovering from Religion and <laughs> you and other other people, of course. It's a pretty, pretty gigantic uh, effort that I had no idea I was signing up for 12, 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I'm a psychologist by training and uh, practice clinical psychology early in my early in my career and uh, then later moved into organizational psychology for the for the majority of my career, 30 years or so. Uh, and before that, I was, I was a confused college student who, who took courses in sociology, anthropology, psychology, ended up with a bachelor's degree in, uh, in sociology with, in, uh, and anthropology, then went on to um, get a master's degree in religion. Because as confused as I was, I thought I could contribute best by being a minister uh, although I was a super liberal minister and very interested in, in uh, uh, well, I went to Scarrett College for Christian Workers because it was literally the only school in the entire nation that had what we would now call a social justice um, um, oh, wow. angle angle to it. And I arrived uh, in the, in the um, fall, September of, of 1972 uh, to to this school in Nashville, Tennessee, and within uh, within days, I'm involved in civil rights act activism uh, <laughs> with my with my then uh, advising professor, uh, Dr. Uh, Bill Barnes, who was probably one of the most liberal Christians I've ever met in my life. <laughs> he just died at the age of 93, I think, oh, no. wow. last year, and wow. I never got to see him again since the mid-70s and just tell him i wish i could tell him how much influence he had on my life but i was literally helping with all sorts of civil rights stuff through him so i got this this social justice angle religious education and thought i would become a minister to the uh to an urban minister it's what it was called the urban ministry where you know i would be with a uh, inner city church. I would be helping develop programs and stuff. I really didn't want to be the preacher every Sunday. I wanted to be the programmatic person, which as you can see, I'm pretty good at. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, after I got out of a two-year master's degree, I realized most of it was bullshit. I still made, I still remained a liberal Christian, but I then moved on into my doctoral um, uh, studies and then graduated from uh, Peabody College of Vanderbilt University in uh, 19, uh, December 1978, uh, and then moved back to, to my home state of Kansas, and I've been there ever, here ever since. But from very early on, Eric, I was very interested in religion, and I also was had inklings of how religion hurt people, because it actually hurt me. I'm not going to claim that my story is nearly as bad as the stories that come to us, but I had enough understanding of what was going on there. And then later with my psychology training, 
to realize that religion is a real net harm in the world. I'm not going to say religion's totally bad, but you know, it's 90% bad. <laughs> That's where I'll go. <laughs> do you, do we really want the, is the really the 10% worth the, the pain and shame and guilt of the other 90% that almost every religion pushes. So that's kind of where I came from. I also wrote a, a, a couple of papers when I was in graduate school that kind of influenced me at the time, the research, doing the research for those papers. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, I, of course, I went into my career. And as a result of um, just kind of staying involved in religion, I, I was usually involved in very liberal religions, um, <laughs> churches. I yeah, I have the singular distinction of having taught evolution to uh, high school students in in the church, in my home church when I was still in uh, in college. In in oh, in, in Tennessee, <laughs> in, in Wichita, Kansas. No, in that's Kansas. Right. You yeah, taught evolution to I church taught, students. I, yeah, church. and I was and I was trying to show them quote <laughs> trying to show them that God and evolution can go together. I didn't actually believe it, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, that was the only way I could get away with it, but I did. And then later, many years later, in the mid '80s, I was still a very. My wife was was very was religious, but she was also very liberal. Uh, we've been divorced since 1988, but we we're still good friends. We we can still communicate and help raise two great kids. But uh, she was still religious and insisted that we go to some church. So we always went. We I. I got her to go to the most liberal church we could find in whatever town we were living in. So I went, I was in the Presbyterian church in the mid eighties and there I was teaching. I taught comparative religions for the Sunday school class. I taught evolution <laughs> for the Sunday school class. I tell you, they couldn't get anybody to teach. I, I wasn't even a member of the damn church. I just, it was the most liberal church that I could get my wife to go to. And they needed Sunday school teachers. Well, I, I taught Sunday school, so I would volunteer. <laughs> well, they weren't going to kick me out because they couldn't get anybody else. And I would have literally, I would have standing room only wow. attendance at my, we, they can, when I would take the sun, when I took the Sunday school, this particular one took that class over, there were like six people showing up every week. And all they really wanted to do was socialize. When I started putting a program together and talking about real, real stuff, it was standing your molly within three or four weeks. And I was, and I had a whole series. You will like this. I had a whole series on different religions. I had the Baha'i religion. I had the Islamic mm. religion. I had a Scientology. I, I just went through a list of about five or six of them, did a little research and then gave kind of many lectures on them. And then of course, half the classes on question and answer time period. So, you know, the format looks familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so you stole my ideas, what you did. Right? <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> no, you, you didn't even know it. So fast forward many years, and I am uh, getting towards the end of my organizational psych career. And I, I've read, I started reading Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and Dennett. And, 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 and Bertrand Russell, uh, you name it. I read a lot of, of books, Dan Barker. And at the end of all those uh, reading, literally throughout the 2000, early 2000s, I was reading all these books. And I just said, damn it, nobody has talked about the psychology of religion here. Mm. They've got philosophy. They've got neuropsychology, maybe with Sam Harris, but not, not much of that. Uh, you know, they've got the anthropology, you name all the fields, but nobody, there's not a single psychologist talking about 
the psychology of religion. And those that are, are usually Christians, and they're basically saying religion's good for you because it prevents depression, you know, or whatever else. Yeah. And I'm thinking, this ain't what I'm seeing. So that's what inspired me to write The God Virus. Well, actually, Richard Dawkins inspired me to write The God Virus because he wrote an essay called um, Viruses of the Mind uh, way back in like 1989. I didn't read it until the early 2000s. And that one essay just keep coming back to me and back to me. I keep thinking, you know, I got, I, I need to write something on this because Dawkins touched on it, but he didn't elaborate. Mm. And then one of the, one of the um, papers I wrote in, in my uh, master's degree in religion was on the civil religion. And again, that paper just kept coming back to me over and over again. So when I put the notion of the civil religion and the God virus or the mind viruses together, that's what exploded in my mind and made uh, paved the way for me to write the God virus. So I wrote the God virus um, usually, basically in the year 2008 and published it uh, right at the beginning of 2009. And as, as a result of that book coming out, it was very successful. I, I never dreamed it would sell as many. It still sells. It still sells really well. And it just didn't dawn on me. I had no, no name. Nobody had ever read a book I'd read, written. I'd written two other books, but they were all in organizational psychology. So I didn't have uh, what they call a platform in the publishing industry. Nobody knew who I was. So whatever I publish is probably not going to sell. If nobody's, you know, if you don't have that kind of platform. But it sold uh, very well anyway and has continued to. But what it did was it struck a note in people. And I think it's because it's written from a psychological perspective and everybody is interested in their own psychology. They're interested in how they got where they are and who they are and how identity is formed. And uh, why, why is, you know, why does guilt such a big thing and why does shame feel so bad? And I mean, there's lots of pieces there and none of those are addressed by anthropology. None of them are addressed by sociology or philosophy. But psychology explains it or helps explain it. And that, that was what touched people. And as a result, I was getting calls and emails and people almost literally knocking on my door saying, I need help. And I couldn't help everybody. So I came on this crazy idea by way of, of my um, publicist. I had hired this guy as my publicist and he, he was supposed to help me get the word out on the God virus. And he, he didn't do that great a job, but one of the things he did, one of the things he did say was, "You should start an organization called Recovering from Religion and use that to sell your book." So I thought, well, okay, that's a good idea. I might sell some more books that way because I don't have a platform. I need a way to get the word out. Right. right. And I met as I, I'm telling this story to you, but you know this story in many ways. I, I go down to the IHOP. I announce, I announce a meeting on Meetup, and at the IHOP, two weeks later, I've got 11 people showing up. And I only know one of the people in the room and they want, I just ask them, how did religion hurt you? And how did religion help you? Uh, I mean, how did religion hurt you? And how have you been helped since leaving religion? And like two hours later, three hours later, we're getting kicked out of the room because they're closing, they're closing the room. At that moment, I realized I had people crying in this meeting. I had people emoting all over the place. I had people questioning deeply, deeply why they felt so much shame and they're not, they don't even believe in the religion anymore. And at the moment I walked out of that room, I thought, this is not a gimmick for selling books. This is a 
serious undertaking and I cannot just leave it here. So I started announcing every couple of weeks that we would have a meeting at that IHOP again. And it was very quickly after that, I got two other people, um, an, a guy named Cole and, and a, a woman named Kay that were involved in our secular organ, uh, secular movement right here in Kansas City. And both of them became interested. So I quickly handed off the one meeting to Kay and we started another meeting south of here about 20 miles that Cole took over. And he both these people ran those meetings for another five, four or five years, uh, roughly having a meeting every month. And that was the start of recovering from religion. We were not, we didn't weren't formally organized. We didn't have a, you know, incorporation or anything. It took us, I, I it took a while for me to think this is really important. This is something that I could, I need to pay attention to and, and grow. It took me about three years. I tried to get other people to help me. And initially I, I couldn't get the kind of help I needed. And then after about, three plus years at that screw this I got to do this by myself <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I put the basic structure together and uh, and was able from then on to start really recruiting people to help me I you know people just needed to see a structure they could plug themselves right. into and yeah. then people like Eric well comes along and starts his starts a recovery from religion group in Springfield <laughs> and you were like I think you were like the fifth group we started um, Literally, you yeah, were one. Yeah. You were like number five out of uh, the, the originals. The first three uh, were here in Kansas City, and then I think one had one in Ohio, if I recall, and then one in Topeka, and then I think I think uh, you you came along in Springfield. I think you were number five or six, if I recall. So that's how Recovery from Religion got started, and and um, it it was not a planned. I didn't plan this. I was too busy. I was, I was, I had a, I had a corporation, my own corporation to run. I'm the CEO of my own small consulting firm with employees and all. When I announced to my staff um, that I was writing this book, my, my office manager turned white. She said, well, Daryl, we're going to lose all our clients. And I said, well, we might lose a few, but I'm not too worried about it. I have to write this book. It's too important. Right. And so I wrote the book, I released the book, and we promptly lost all but two of my clients. Wow, so really? Client, clients that I had had for 20 years, literally going back mm. to the late 80s, early 90s, clients I'd had for a long time, for sure. Um, and this is, remember, this is 2008, 2009. And they just dropped me like a hot potato. Wow. And, and they'd known me for 20 years. And right. in, a, in the consulting business, you don't you don't keep you don't stay with a company for 20 years unless you're doing a damn good job right and in many of these companies i had stayed longer than several ceos longer than several hr directors so i was i was doing something that was really valuable to them or they wouldn't have kept paying me the money they were paying me but many of them were evangelical christians of course it's midwest and all that i live and uh, so losing those clients forced me to make a decision about what to do. And that decision meant I had to retire early. I couldn't make a living anymore. My, my business had disappeared right underneath my feet. So I, I started shutting down the business. And fortunately for me, the God virus sold enough copies to make up for much, much of the lost income that I had that first two or three years. And I was able to go ahead and I won't say smoothly retire, but at least <laughs> retire without going into deep, deep debt or anything. 
And, and then I could just focus, focus on recovery from religion and start figuring out what programs do we need. And one of the first programs I recognized was the Secular Therapy Project, which we'll be talking later about with, uh, with other people. And that came from just the, the cries and need for help, finding a good therapist that doesn't pray with you or send you back to Jesus or tell you your, your depressions because you don't go to church or believe in God. And that came out of, of a lot of work in 2000, late 2010, 2011, a man named, I met a man named Hans Hills, Hans Hills at a conference. And uh, I told him, I, just, I don't know how it all came about, but I was telling him, we really need to find secular therapists. And, but I can't do it because I don't have the technical skills. And he said, well, I've got the technical skills, so I'll, I'll volunteer to do it. And it took him about eight months to put those struck the, the shell of the web page together and to help me put the database together. And then I announced it in May of 2012. And I already had found 12, uh, 25 different, I think it was 24 different therapists that would agree to sign on. And so I had a core of 24 therapists. And, uh, and that's how the Secular Therapy Project got started in May of 2012. And then about three years later, uh, David Klinge came along and uh, I, I was needing some help updating it. Hannah had since left, and I, I didn't have anybody to help me update it. And Dave Kling came along, and you know Dave. He's yeah. an, an amazing guy. He's on the board now, but he, he single-handedly revamped the whole thing, made it work so much better, much smoother with, you know, things. technology is constantly changing and improving. So that's how that all, all got started. It took about took us about four years to really get the psychotherapy project up and running. I mean, it's a, it's a chicken and an egg thing. You know, if, if you don't have any therapists, why would anybody come search for a therapist? <laughs> and if you don't have any clients, why would a therapist join your, your organization? So, you know, therapists are going to join the psychotherapy project so they can get paying clients. Right. Clients are going to join because they want to find a good therapist in their community. But if I don't have any in your community, it's kind of, Anyway, it just took a long time, constantly, how, pay, you know, pounding the pavement, trying to find therapists to sign up, and going to talk conferences, you know, and letting people know about it. Well, now we're at 538 therapists scattered around mostly in North America, but we're in seven countries now, and uh, we have over 20, I think 27 or 28,000 clients registered in the Secular Therapy Project. It's incredible. Yeah. So we were at a conference, uh, some of us that were at, at that time, it was probably 2013, I think, or 14. And uh, we, were, we were conducting kind of a, here's a RFR, it was a side, little side conference within the bigger conference, here's what RFR is all about. And one of the people who were there, was at the conference, uh, heard what we were trying to do with small groups. And he said, he said, you know, I think you could start a, a hotline. He, of course, he called it a hotline. And he said, I have worked with um, suicide hotlines before, and I've seen their software. I know how to put that together and all. Anyway, uh, that, that's where the idea came from. It came from just going to a conference and talking to somebody. It turned out he couldn't or wouldn't, I don't remember, um, do the software development and the web page and all but we did find somebody that could do that and within a few months we were uh, testing testing beta testing a um, what we later became became known as the helpline and that had the chat line and the phone line in it 
and uh, over the period of about a year or two, we 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 perfected the chat line and we also perfected the phone line, uh, but so that by 2016, uh, the major programs, the, the small groups programs that you now run, of course, and the helpline, uh, chat line, phone line, those three programs were pretty much developed. Um, not in the not as well as they are now, but they were there and they were working. Um, and then we uh, we brought Gail on about 2016 as uh, executive director, and she promptly started kicking butt and taking names, or <laughs> in a good yes, way. She, <laughs> uh, she has really taken the bull by the horns, and uh, you know, providing really the day to day leadership. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a decent leader. I know how to bring people together. I know how to um, communicate a mission, but I'm not very good at the details day to day. And uh, I needed, we need somebody. We need somebody like Gail who can kind of keep track of how the organization's functioning, who, what the leadership needs. And then I can, I can step back and just kind of be the big picture. Um, what's the future of RFR? And that's the that's the role I've taken uh, since Gail came on. It's so delightful, absolutely delightful to work with her because it's like I, I don't know. It, it's hard to describe it. I don't think I've ever worked with another human being that is as compassionate and intelligent. I mean, mm -hmm. the intelligence just oozes oh, from her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is this is a woman that decided at the age of something like fifty to go back and get a law degree and. Uh, <laughs> And she did uh, in the in like the same time you would get if you were 20 years old, you know, and uh, and then she passed the bar in California the first time she took it, which uh, they, I've, I've been told unheard is the second, <laughs> second hardest bar to pass. It is actually unheard of. So that's just how intelligent she is. And uh, it's, it's just a delight to work with her because between her and I and now we put together since about 2014 or 15. We've completed, we really put together a damn good board of yeah. board members that, I mean, we've had some people leave, uh, maybe like Susie Box. She was there from the very beginning, practically. She did a great, fantastic. yeah, oh my gosh. she was a great board member, but she's since moved on after like five years of doing it. Uh, we don't expect a lifetime sentence if you join our bar. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you don't? Oh, no. okay. that's good to know. Yeah, we, we, we don't, oh, wait, yeah, for you, we, you, you have a chain on your ankle. You're not getting away. <laughs> but anyway, we have people who've been with us a long time and have done great stuff like David Klingy. You know, he was working, he did a second therapy project for three years before we um, said, well, why don't we bring him on as kind of the technical advisor to the board as, and as a board member? And, uh, you know, we've just been able to collect some really, really uh, dedicated people. I mean, these are people who really are, oh, you know, they, just, they just have a passion for what we're doing. I mean, like you're going to talk to Shannon Nebo, I, I know, and you've already, you probably talked to uh, Phil. I don't know if you've talked to Phil Sessions, but every one of these, Gwen, Gwen is just astounding at how, her, her skill level, but also her dedication and, and passion for what we do. So it's just a, it's, it's been a delight to put an organization together. I, I know how to put organizations together. I know how to structure them. I know how to create the shell, if you will, but other people have to put that, make that shell work. And that's, that's what we've got.
just a great group of people. And it's not just the board members. I mean, I don't want you, I don't want the listener to think it's board members only because we've got, we got great leaders at the, on the chat line, phone line, John and John and Steve, and we got your leadership and the support groups and Sasha and Sherry, of course, one of our newest board members leading the international expansion. So, well, um, kind of uh, reflecting back on um, all that you've said, I can really see how each one of these pieces fit into um, the overall creation of, of RFR. You yourself were religious and kind of experienced, um, not necessarily deep, but uh, some trauma coming out of it. And you understood some of the emotions that uh, you kind of felt, um, even as you delved into it heavily as getting a master's in, in religion. Um, you got, uh, you understand psychology for both individuals as well as organizations as a whole. Mm-hmm. And then um, once you wrote uh, the book about psychology on religion and um, started to promote it, you quickly saw this need that had not been fulfilled. Um, and I can see all of those pieces as incredibly integral and uh just naturally forming uh, the organization that uh, we see now. Um, and I got to tell you, you were talking about the people and the individuals inside the organization. And one of the things that is lacking is, uh, among many of these volunteers is the ego. It seems that most, the vast majority of the volunteers are more mission driven than ego driven and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's one of the most unique places that i've um, been able to do work with uh, i well that yeah that's intentional it really is intentional this is not a place for self-glorification or your gratification comes from the fact that people say thank you for helping me at the end of a phone call at the end of a chat at the end of a support group meeting your gratification comes because you, for example, we've got a whole team that works putting, putting a library together of resources mm-hmm. and your gratification comes from knowing and hearing that people are using those resources to heal from, from the damage that they had experienced. If, if you're not, if you're not, you know, it's, a, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, many of your listeners are probably somewhat familiar with that. Uh, we we want people in recovery from religion that are pretty high on the on the pyramid of, of needs. They're not here for themselves. They're here. They've got some. They got g- good skills in listening, or they can learn those skills. They're empathic. They can understand how other people might feel. Can identify enough to help them. And it starts with a board. I mean, you know every one of our board members, and there's not a, there's not an ego on that board. It's yeah. if anybody has too much of an ego, it's probably me. Uh, nobody else. I mean, these <laughs> these people are just dedicated, and they don't care who gets the credit, and and that's really important because it's not a matter of did somebody get credit or not. Everybody should be getting credit, and I think it's the board's pretty darn good at this. I think our leaders have gotten very good at it, and that is say praising people and letting mm-hmm. people know thank you for the for the efforts you've given thank you for helping the person you just helped. And it gets pretty specific, especially, you know, on the, on the, on the helpline, 
we, we look, I'll look at a specific chat or some, one of our leaders will look at a specific chat and we'll give very specific positive feedback about how you're using the skills that we've taught or that we, you know, we ask people to use in, on the chat line or, or in the support groups. And that goes a hell of a long way. Here's the secret, I think, Eric, and I'll give myself away here. People volunteer here because they want to pay, they want to pay, pay it forward. They know how religion hurt them. They're trying to prevent that hurt in other people. Oftentimes, not everybody's like that. Some people like Amaya were, you know, been atheists their whole life, but they still want to help people. Yeah. And they get, they get meaning from mean, you get meaning from meaningful activity. Mm -hmm. And it's meaningful when somebody says, thank you. I couldn't have done this without your help. Or, or thank you. That resource really meant a lot to me. Or thank you that, the way you restated my problem really gave a new perspective on it. That's, that's so much more satisfying uh, for somebody who's not ego driven. But if they're, if they're here to get individual recognition, you'll get it. We, we yeah. recognize people all the time, but that's not the main focus. <laughs> the main focus is helping our clients. Yeah. So uh, I know that um, uh, RFR as an organization um, had uh, its ups and downs. It's had its uh, uh, struggles and grow with growth and um, kind of uh, honing in on some of the programs. But um, amidst all the struggles and all the successes, what has this been like for you? Like I, I ask all of the other uh, uh, leaders, like what has volunteering been like for you? And what you know when you look back what what has it been like for you i've i've had a whole career i'm 71 years old as of this interview and and i can say with with no hesitation this is the most meaningful thing i've ever done in my life and i've done some pretty cool stuff i i've had a <laughs> wonder i've had a wonderful life i've traveled all over the world i've i met some really interesting people and i've 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 just had a great life and to end my life on this note is like, wow, <laughs> how could I have done any better? It is such a super good group of people to work with. And it's such a, it's such an important mission. And we are in a niche that no other, no other organization on this entire planet is meeting. Yeah. It, it's not like there's a lot of people out there competing to, to help people recover from religion. I mean, there's a hell of a lot of people trying to get people into religion, but we are literally the, the only organization on the planet helping people get out of religion. And we're not doing it in a coercive way. We're, we're doing it in a psychologically sound way. You go at your pace. You take your journey. If you want to stay in religion, we'll even help you do that. Mm -hmm. We'll help you do it more psychologically safe for you so you can find a non-cult kind of religion maybe or more liberal religion or uh you know we aren't here to deconvert people we're here to help people live safe psychologically safe lives so they can thrive after uh, they can thrive while they're on this planet and that's that's what's been so rewarding to me i, I couldn't possibly help the thousands and thousands tens of thousands of people that we help and probably every year we help tens of thousands of people in some way, shape or form. I couldn't do that alone. It, mm -hmm. it takes, it takes the 300 plus volunteers that we've got to make that happen. So we've got people meeting in 
<laughs> I hear Estonia soon or Latvia, which was it? Estonia. <laughs> Estonia. We got people meeting in Australia. We got people meeting in Mexico. And, and these people are, are able to do that because there's a trained volunteer that makes them feel safe. Because you cannot go into a church and feel safe. You know, no matter how kind the church is, it's still going to ask you for you know, a commitment. And they're still going to make you guilty about your sexuality or your body or something. And we're just different because you can be who you are. And you can discover who you are through just being around other people who are also discovering who they are at Recovering from Religion. It's, it's really quite a calling I'm almost evangelical about it, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's from your teacher and your Sunday school uh, history <laughs> background. I, I love I love teaching. I've always and I'm a terrible teacher. I I tried teaching two different times, once undergraduate school, college and graduate school, and I hated it. I just hated it. So I, I'm a good teacher, but I don't want to teach. <laughs> as a profession, you know. <laughs> well, Dr. Ray, um, this has been great. Folks, thanks for watching this. Uh, we've got, uh, we're going to start the next few um, sections of this. We'll start talking about the programs that Recovering from Religion has to offer, and you'll get a much better idea of what RFR does. So thanks, Dr. Ray, again, for coming on and talking with us. You're welcome. <laughs>